0: I just stopped by the bookstore and talked to whose wife, yeah, there she is, and uh, the other day, a, month, a couple of months ago, we live in Huntsville, Alabama now, been there about a year and a half, and somebody put together a program and advertised that I was going to be out at the PX, the Redstone Arsenal, signing books. So there's a, several people there. A guy came by, a friend of mine, and I said, Leo, you're the only guy I know trying to become a millionaire one dollar at a time, so, <laughs> so go ahead and buy the books, you know, it's another book. Thank you for having me here I, I've been here before and uh, general Metcalf and uh, general Hudson just met uh, so it really is a pleasure to be here you're, you're, you're bright you understand what you know what aviation is and you're interested in what what our careers were and it's, it's a fun thing to be uh, to, a fun thing to be involved with. and I first uh, learned to fly and I, get, I got my commission my wings and uh, you know got paid to do it uh, being a fighter pilot uh, until I got shut down it was, there, was no, there was the best job I've ever had and that was just a little bit of a fine print but uh, it, I, I was very blessed to be allowed to, uh, to fly fighter airplanes and whatever the, uh, the, the current airplane was at the time, the state of the art. Uh, I've always said when I, when I ejected, I was doing 600 knots. Uh, my backseater, Harry Johnson, he survived. Electronic warfare officer, I was a wild weasel. I think you, all, you people know what that is, a lot of people don't. Uh, our job was to go in first, find, find uh, surface-to-air missiles, which was the first war that there were surface-to-air missiles. And it, as you know, it took away a chunk of airspace and the, the war in North Vietnam was just, just an air war, there's no ground war. But we, we lost that airspace, so our industry, military, there are people right around here and others, got together, designed those black boxes, put it in a two place fighter, in this case it was a 105. Uh, you have one here, uh, and uh, put an electronic warfare officer in the back seat, Iwo, and an experienced driver, pilot like Leo, in the front seat, and as you know, they called us Wild Weasels. The uh, first five weasels that went to Takli, Thailand. Were, um, got there, and they felt pretty good about this brand new uh, mission and job, and they were saying to these guys carrying the iron bombs, dumb bombs, as you know in those days, they said, hey, okay, I have no fear, we're here, we'll take care of those SAM guys, you know, and all that stuff, and, and um, 45 days later, all, all five crews were gone, or all five airplanes were gone, and so Harry and I were the sixth crew to get there, <laughs> and uh, as you know, normally it's nice to have a wingman, but it was kind of difficult to get the ops officer to schedule anybody to fly with us, because... We're going to go in there and, you know, troll around. And uh, the odds of getting shot down were about two or three times as, as much as the guys carrying the iron bombs. And so what we ended up with is they gave us, they gave us the dregs of the wingmen. I mean, guys, you know, they were – there's nothing wrong with the tank colonels. But uh, <laughs> 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 but we were uh, – you know, I was, you know I was a young major at the time. But anyway, uh, these guys, the tank colonels, they've been, they've been flying multi engines They've been flying bombers or mats or something. And they weren't trained as firepots, so the firepots, they, they cycled through the system by the time I got there. So now it's kind of their turn. They went to this you know, RTU, I guess we call it, to learn how to fly a 105. And they got over there, and you, know, you get up there in North Vietnam, and it, it, was a, it was a violent environment. You're yanking and banking, and you're you know, keeping a good airspeed, uh, and you've got SAMs and FLAX, and you're jinking, and, you know, and you're in there just trolling around. You, you, there's no set plan. You're just waiting for SAM to fire at you so you can find him and then kill him. Uh, assuming he doesn't get you first. But I was losing my wingman, so I was spending more time, or as much time, you know, trying to ease into turns and so on. And so anyway, uh, eventually, eventually being about two missions later, I said to the officer, look, I, I got I to gotta ask, give me some young guys, give me some lieutenants that don't know any better. <laughs> 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 but some of those lieutenants, I'd trained at Nellis Air Force Base. And I, they, you know, we, they'd been there a little before I did. And, uh, and they weren't real happy to fly with me, but I said, you know, We'll, we'll have a good time up there, or you know, whatever I said. And so, but the very first, the very first mission, I got these lieutenants. There were four, three lieutenants, and they, uh, and I put the you know green. I put the most inexpensive as number two, and uh, we got up, and we were still up north of the Red River. Uh, we'd hit a couple of SAM sites, and I don't know, there are MIGS around always. But anyway, all four of us survived, and we were able to stay in there till the, lat, the guys in and in and out, and it started turning to go up, and so uh, but we're still up north of the Red, and I called you know green two. I said. Yeah, Cadillac. I said, Cadillac too? I said, go ahead lead. I said, take us home. Where's China? (laughs) 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 But it just is more accident, I think, than anything else. But these guys were, you know, as you know, as a young lieutenant flying in combat and you're going for 100 missions, they're going to see somebody's wing. That's all they're going to see for 100 missions. And all of a sudden now, here's the guy, and we're still up there. There's still, you know, some danger around. And uh, his, his, so from that day on, I had people volunteering to fly with me. And it was just these young guys because it was, and as we know, in any job that we have anywhere, uh, there's so much knowledge and smarts and uh, motivation in young people, and depending on the job is how much authority you can give them. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was the best leadership I'd ever shown. It was by accident. But it, it really worked out well. And they were better wingmen. They kept track of what was going on. And it, the, the, whole, the whole mission improved because of that. Of it. Just, I want to mention, um, uh, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm going to try to be, my talks are so smooth, but tonight I'm going to jump around, <laughs> jump around a lot. <laughs> and I didn't say speech, I just give a talk. Uh, but I want to mention a couple, uh, couple things that I, I hope have analogies to any job, whatever it might be. One is, is teamwork. In, at Takli, where we were, uh, I'll, I'll, just, I'll drop down three levels. The first one is, is the people on the ground that were, were fighting the airplanes. The crew chiefs, the maintainers, the, the weapons people, the people, you know, put the right fuse on it, the weather people, everybody that was involved on the ground giving us. It, and they'd, when we were there, that, there are cycles when all the maintenance people belong to a maintenance organization, sometimes they belong to squadrons, that's gone back and forth a lot. Over there, the maintenance guys belong, the people belong to the squadron, so we're kind of a cohesive unit. And so we got to know them better. And so, but they would, they was, if there was one little gig on that airplane, and you came back in the afternoon, you write it up. And they'd stay up all night. Was, the next morning, it was like we got a new airplane. They were so good and so dedicated. That, and, and, and when we took off and flew, those, the maintainers, when they had some time, they sat up there on top of the revetments. And we came in, they counted. There's one, there's two, there's three. And if we were missing an airplane or two, I mean, they were just crushed. Uh, especially if they found out it was their airplane, saying, did I do something wrong? Could I have done better? But it was, it was just a great team effort. And, and So we were given great airplanes. Number two, the, the wingmen I picked out, uh, they became very dedicated. And you, you pick out guys that had to, uh, would stick with you and they'd fly through a bunch of flack and you know, they, they'd have trust in your leadership and uh, you gave them some authority. Uh, they could put bombs on target. Uh, they, they had good eyeballs, uh, pick up a spare, spare mig or a, a, launch, a surprise mig or, or SAM launch uh, and uh, would, would hang in there with you. And so those wingmen, and, number, and every team has got a, got a key person, no matter what that is. If it's, if it's your marriage, well, it's, there's you know, it's, it's a joint effort. But what, no matter what, it is there's always a person that's key in that team. In my case, my key guy was, a uh, key person in that team was Harry Johnson, my backseater. He knew so much about electronics. He, in fact, he knew too much. <laughs> I'd say, Harry, what's that signal? You know, it sounded like a rattlesnake, some of the signals that they'd set it up so when Sam starts painting and so on. And so Harry says, oh, yeah, well, he'd start explaining to me what the antenna looked like.
1: <laughs> and
0: we're up there, you know, we're thinking, I'm trying to. I'm thinking about staying alive, and 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 I'd say, Harry, I, I don't. It's gonna kill us or not? That's all I need to know right now. Maybe tonight we can talk about. It. <laughs> but but Harry was just so good at what he did. He he got us out of trouble sometimes before we were in trouble. Plus he was cross that he could be calling out stuff coming on the cockpit, and he'd say, Leo, we got to make it five o'clock. You know, <laughs> I don't know how he did it. But uh, but anyway, the the point being, I maybe I overstressed the time on on team. If the if all three levels of that team did their job well that day we were successful. If any one level of that team failed that day, we were either dead or we were prisoners of war. Most of the, most of the weasel missions were near Hanoi, so if you were shot down, you, were, you weren't going to get rest uh, any chance of that. So, but I, I've never had such a great lesson on, on teamwork as, uh, and how uh, vitally important every level, well, no matter what you do in this organization or in place, your job is important. Uh, another, just to pick out another uh, maybe an analogy, and I want to talk about focus for a moment. When we, those first five weasels that we lost, uh, they got there and they thought they had, well, it was, it was a steep learning curve, and it wasn't their fault. They just, we didn't know how to do it. By the time we got there, Harry and I read everything about the, access, the, the loss reports, Anybody, and wingmen that flew with them. Uh, we, we learned as much as we could about why they lost those five airplanes. And Harry's from Iowa, and I'm a Minnesota guy, so, you know, we're both rocket scientists and uh, <laughs> grew up on farms. Um, but, uh, so we had this yellow pad of paper, you know, and here's what they did, and then we said, okay, let's, is there anything, 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 we can do, we didn't do any of those things, we said, those are out, <laughs> so we tried to come up with some ideas, what, and we did, we came up some different ways, we decided to go in at a higher altitude, and uh, Sam travels at, uh, SA2 travels at uh, 3,000 feet per second once it accelerates, and uh, so the way we set it up is, uh, 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 try this one, and I wrote to the Fighter Weapons School, and I said, look, if we do this, do you think it'll work? And they said, oh, "Geez, you might give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> and what I suggested we were going to do, and what we did was, we went up to 18, 20,000 feet, kept a pretty good mock. As soon as we got a confirmed launch, and there are two or three or four of them you're painting now, and here you s- s- sort of, as soon as we got a confirmed SAM launch, I'd crank the airplane quickly, either so, it was either by 3 o'clock or my 9 o'clock position, and my wingman knew what was going on. I was over at Cadillac. And I'd say, as soon as we got that launch out, they'd see me crank it around. They'd start closing a little bit. And I'd say, take it down. Cadillac, take it down. We all rolled in plug plug at the burner. We pointed our nose about 70 degrees straight down. Uh, 70 degrees, that's not quite straight down. And uh, we were trying to pick up about 600 knots. We still got our bombs. We're still the big old 105 would do it. And, uh, and, I, and I'm watching the SAM come in. I, my dive angle, I kind of adjusted it so that I could, so I could put everything just right here, uh, whatever just right is. And... Uh, and let me just stop freezing. The ground is getting really big fast now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm watching the sand. It's arcing down, of course, because it's going to cut me off. You know, I fired three, six seconds apart. But you didn't worry about number two and three, so you're concerned about one first. And so I'm watching that thing, and when it's, uh, when it's a mile to a mile and a half out or so, and that's uh, and it's about like a telephone pole, a little bit fatter, but portionless. it looks like you see it. And when it's a mile and a half, that's two or three seconds out, it's literally two or three seconds out. And uh, at, at that, at, if I did everything just right, I punched my mic button. Well, first let me say, this is where I learned focus. Okay. <laughs> if you're not focused now, probably you never will be. Uh, if I just punch my mic button and say pull, and uh, all, all four airplanes we swap ends as fast as we could. If we did it just right, we, we did the, we did two things right. We didn't hit the ground, and we didn't hit the Sam. And the first Sam usually would hit the ground if we got low enough. Sam here, and the second one's about here, and the third is about here. And then we and we back and burner uh, up. Uh, we'd roll in. And now we can find it. And the reason we we're doing this is because a lot of sites were camouflaged. But once they launched at you, uh, leaves a contrail in certain atmospheric conditions. Dry season, it kicked up a bunch of dirt down there. So now your odds of finding that SAM site uh, are real good. So that was, but it, it worked pretty well for 92 and a half missions. <laughs> uh, but a, a, little, a little bit. So I, I think those. Uh, I hope those analogies have some meaning. The, the uh, you know focus and, uh, and teamwork. A little bit about uh, we all. Uh, who are in the working world, uh, are uh, preparing for the next job most times and hoping to get a promotion or move on to the next job, whatever it might be. And as fighter pilots in Vietnam, the job none of us wanted, but the job we all knew we might get, uh, was being a prisoner of war. And uh, as the last thing, you know, the worst job in the world we think about, but uh, also every day, or most every day, we lost somebody that killed or captured or shot down. And the preparation I had to get this, take on, take on this next job, my, my personal mantra was, do what's right, help others. I just developed that from the time I was mature, an adult, which is well after I was 18, but I, I, I started thinking about certain people I respected more than others. Why is that? And I started figuring out, oh, so they do what's right, regardless of the consequences, they do what's right. Or other people, including my daughter, she was always help, helping others, and she'd pick out little girls that didn't have, you know, they, they didn't fit in school very well, but she was just do what's right, help others. Those are five great words to They work together or separately. Um, that's part of my makeup. That was my mantra. Uh, also, we knew the Geneva Convention. In that war, there was still such a thing as the Geneva Convention. There still is. But as you know now, uh, if you're captured now by a terror, or you know, in Iraq, it's, uh, now I think you're, you're more of a hostage. I mean, the, the people who are captured nowadays, it's, the, the, I don't have any good answers when you talk to them. But, but um, so it was. we had the Geneva Convention, and we hoped that they wouldn't abuse it too much. Uh, we had the Code of Conduct, which you're all familiar with, you know, doing... Like every attempt to escape and all the kinds of things, you follow the senior ranking officer. Um, so, uh, and also, the other thing that gave me a, a degree of confidence was I, we had a lot of friends, my wife and my daughter and I, we we're a typical family, and I'd flown with some of these people in, in the fighter business for many years who, who went ahead of me, and some of those were shot down, and some of those were announced as being prisoners. And I thought, well, I know those people, and we'll know them well. Sam Johnson or you know all those people we knew over there and I thought well they made it into the system obviously they still got their honor and their integrity and if they can do it I can do it so I, I didn't want the job but that was my preparation floating down uh, atoll right up the tailpipe didn't see the MIG or being in the valley we picked up and accelerated launch and right up the tailpipe instantly came apart uh, Harry and I ejected about 600 knots we'd seen airplanes Hit badly, and the guy's trying to slow down to get into a safe ejection speed. envelope. right? Slow down, you're less a chance. But we chance. But oftentimes, they didn't get out. The airplane implodes or explodes, and so they, they didn't make it. So Harry and I said from day one, just about, if we're hit badly, we're going to go right now, regardless of speed, and we'll take our injuries, but we're going to survive. And, and that happened. The airplane was coming apart, and we, uh, my knees went straight sideways. Harry hurt his back badly and some other injuries, but we made it. But floating down, a couple of things are still vivid in my mind. One was um, I was still three, four thousand feet in the air, uh, mountain jungle west of Hanoi. It was afternoon, it was a little clearing, and it was kind of dark in there. Your your adrenaline's flowing, and airplanes were zipping around, and I, I looked, I caught my attention right back and there were, were muzzle flashes. They were shooting at me. Now it's hard, this is true. It's hard to hide in a parachute. Really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you get a real pucker factor on that one. I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, but some two. Um, Something, uh, two other quick things Thought passed my mind. One was I, I, I was totally devastated. We were on our 93rd mission. We were as good as we were going to get at our job. We'd shot down a couple of MiGs. We'd, we'd kill more Sam Sides. We were sink weasels, so to speak. And yet there we were floating down. And I knew it had to be my fault. I'm the pilot. I'm in charge. And my thought was some of the friends were in prison. Some had been shot down days, months, weeks, years ago. And the wife and family didn't know what happened to them. It's a terrible thing to put a family into that condition. And I thought... It's my fault for floating down, and if I'm killed when I hit the ground, will my family, my wife, my daughter ever find out about it? No. I mean, I just I felt like a total failure to my family because I realized what I was what they were going to go into because yeah, the, the bad. But the other part of it is, and I, I, I kind of say this phrase: I think everybody here, I think everybody has a better, fuller life if they have some spirituality. Okay, believe in something greater than self. or really. In our case, our, in our family, our spiritual world has to be Christian. And while I was floating down, there was this voice in my – it was just like it was a little tape, tape just a roll-up going over and over and over. It kept saying, Leo, you're going to make it. Leo, you're going to make it. Leo, you're going to – I've never had a prayer preemptively answered. I liked that a lot. That was, that was the Lord <laughs> – no question. That was the Lord talking to me. <laughs> One other thing, by the way, if you if you got your priorities sort of slipped into being – it's important to have you know, a certain kind of car, a certain kind of house, a certain, you know a certain kind of clothes – uh, when you're floating down, and uh, you look down, you see them shooting at you. With a snap of a finger, your priorities are back where they ought to be. I mean, all, all of a sudden, those things aren't real important, or your bank account, or something. Um, I uh, won't go into much on, on prison. On Hanoi, 18 days and nights. Uh, heartbreak. You've all heard about the heartbreak. Uh, the name of the, the little cell block and knobby walls, cement slabs, stocks like you see in cartoons. You know, little circles that go. And your, they, your feet fit in there, and uh, they're too tight, and you. Your ankles bleeding, there are sores on them, and stuff, a very difficult time. Um, and uh, at some point, uh, you know, hooks on the ceiling, just real, a lot of really bad stuff. And uh, at some point during those 18 days and nights, and I don't know when it was, first day, last day, somewhere in between, but anyway, I went past name, rank, serial number, date of birth. They broke me. And uh, it was a bad fail in my family, but at that time it failed me. It was a terrible, a terrible, I'll never forget it. And I remember I thought, I think, and I tried to cry, and I was past tears. And I thought, well, I'm not worthy of living. Maybe I can die. And I said, you're in a stocks so got two feet in a hand uh, in stocks, and they're watching you kind of, you're control of your life. And, uh, and then I thought, well, if I survive this, however long it takes, uh, I, ho- I, I hope they don't put me in with another American because these are the guys I know, and they all made it, and I didn't. It was a terrible moment. Uh, well, of course, I survived, and, of course, they put me in with somebody else, or they did, a man by the name of Jim Hichu. Who died a couple of years ago? And Jim and I had known each other at in Thailand. He'd been there about six weeks longer than I. We didn't recognize each other. we changed so much. But I couldn't walk, and they kind of pushed me in there, stumbled in there, and I wouldn't look at Jim. And uh, I, you know, I started explaining to him what a failure I was. He said, "You're Leo Thorson." Anyway, he said, "Leo, just knock it off." He said, "Don't you know?" He said, "Everybody who went through that type of interrogation, they either died, or they broke, or they did both." You know, and it was—I've never felt so, so. Elated, so wonderful, to be average. <laughs> Man, that average is really good. <laughs> okay, that's all that. Uh, communications. You all know the TAP code. It's in the book. And there will be a test before you get out of here because you got the book. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. There's no K, so there's L. We threw K away. L. So my initial LT. L is the third row down, first one. So uh, so you tap row and then column. And, and T happens to be able this work. Here's L, T. Four, four right. That's where T would fall if you, if you looked in there. And uh, the uh, and, and by the way, for a long time after Johnson and, and McNamara, probably two people who have been fun to live next door to, but they had no idea how to run a war. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they uh, uh, and so they stopped the bombing. There was, there was nothing else going on in North Vietnam. There was no lever to get us out. There was no pressure. They stopped the bombing for several years when that first happened. The North Vietnamese told us that North America stopped the bombing because our de- their defenses were so good. We were afraid to come over, so we just couldn't do it anymore. But Whatever it was, we knew they'd stopped them, not for that. But uh, so with, right away, we knew we're going home because there, that's all the Commander in Chief had to get us out was the pressure of, of bombing up in North Vietnam. And then the days went by, and then the weeks went by, and the, and, and we started falling. And, and well, I mean, we hit the bottom so hard. For years, we sat there. So it, it was a, it was a difficult. Uh, difficult, to t- and then the first three years, as you know, uh, were uh, were pretty brutal. Uh, torture was not period; it, w- it was off and on, kind of regular. They wanted a lot of propaganda. They knew the equipment pretty well. It wasn't that they just wanted us to make anti-war statements and all that. And they would torture and they would trust your to write a statement saying you're being treated well. That's happened to me more than <laughs> once. I how ironic! Uh, but uh, the, the the tap code was so essential, and two thirds of us there were Air Force uh, aviators. A third were neighbor, and there were five Marines. That was just a breakout. The Marines were close to air support near the DMZ like they fly, you know, and then they were captured brought north. Uh, and brought in. And the uh, uh, general here, uh, Metcalf, and he, he and I are Air Force, and if you were on the other side of the wall, once we learn the tap code, you can tap back and forth real quietly, and the guard doesn't hear you because they hear you, they beat you, but you can get most of you. So we can tap about 15 words a minute. Are there any, anybody here with naval background? Just, you, you, sir. Uh, anybody with the Marines background? Okay, I'll make one up. Uh, So (laughs) so your Navy, and so if you and I were uh, tapping back and forth, I would slow down to about 11 words a minute. (laughs) And in case there's a Marine or somebody's got a Marine in their family, we didn't teach those five Marines the tap code, right? (laughs) But I always say they were tough enough. They didn't need to know. But uh, really, that may or may not be true. But once you put pajamas on people and you don't bathe at all, you look and smell about the same. And It's, it's hard to tell one service from the other. Uh, but that was our communications, and it generally worked. Uh, and uh, it was essential to communicate. If, if somebody was tortured in this cell, cell one, and you live in cell two, and they start another purge this week or something, and they want propaganda about what If he can get back to the cell at night, and if he can get himself to the wall and tap to you, what it is they wanted what types, we had names, what type of torture they used, uh, what he finally said if, if he had to say something, uh, what lies he told him to keep them simple. Uh, you you did, it was a bad night because you returned tomorrow But you were a lot better prepared. I mean, life and truly life and death sometimes depend on communication. It still does. Ours is very fundamental, but good communication, simple communication that you don't mix up what's being said or, you know, be it, be it with the technology we have now or with the tap code. It's just essential. Um, a little bit on the, on, on surviving, uh, you know, tough times survival. When we came home, th- we came home in four groups, and when the last group was home, no one POW at the time, uh, we talked to DOD and said, we don't want to talk about torture till the last guy's out because if we start talking about too soon, they may keep the guys there or we'll take it out on them. So we didn't. There's was no, no, and then when the last group was out. They said, okay, have a press conference. I was at Scott. Uh, you were closest to your service uh, to your home state, <coughs> which was, for me, it was Scott. There were three press conferences, West Coast, Mid-Coast, or Mid and, and same time. And there were three of us, Dave Wynn and I, and I forget, there were, two, there were four of us. But we, they said, make a statement and answer questions. Any questions the media have. So we did. Made a short statement. Right away, the first question was, were you tortured? Yes, we were. Uh, why were you tortured? Well, mostly for propaganda. Okay, well, how did they torture you? Well, they used the suitcase trick or the rope trick or whatever, mm-hmm. the names. What does that mean? So... We kept answering, and they, they, their eyes got kind of bigger and bigger and saying, really? Uh, you know?" And then, like, it, they, it was hard for them to believe us, Though so we were sitting in the hospital with scars to show them. Uh, and they did, but it took, and then there was a kind of a pause, and then they said, how did you do it? How did you get through those tough times, time after time? And we, we answered it, but we, we should have, you know, I wish I would have said. We talked about it afterwards. We didn't answer it well, but we talked about it afterwards, and, and here's how the POWs uh, some of the ways the POWs got through tough times and I think it applies to a lot of people in a lot of situations. Everybody here has been through a tough time in your life. Probably everybody will have another tough time or whatever that relative is. It's, it's tough. Number one is the will to survive is really strong you just don't give up. Number two, um, it has to do with time and, and many, everybody here has heard it or said it. I'll take it a day at a time going through this tough time whatever it is. For us, we said you're by yourself in these really difficult times. Generally, you're always by yourself, and there's always a bunch of them on you. Uh, you'd break it down. And you'd say to yourself, I think I can last another minute. I think I can last 30 seconds. Rather than saying, I can, I can get through this session. Uh, it, it didn't make time our friend, but it wasn't, didn't seem to be as much of an enemy. Number three, it took me a little while to come up with it, but the word is love. And uh, at one time, I was with Jack Bomar, who died recently. Ne- really tough, good men. And this it, the only time I've ever been tortured with somebody, back and forth, Jack and I, in a little cell. And when, when it's his turn, you hear things snap or pop or sounds coming out of the body. And, um, you do anything you could for him. You love that man so much. And I, I think the lesson I brought home with me was when you're with somebody, either by design or by accident, it's going through a real tough time. If they know that you care about them and give them a hug or whatever, spend a little time with them, hold their hand, uh, that's meaningful. And I, I guess we call them support groups in one way. And my wife has been through cancer like a lot of people ever but support groups or being with someone that they know you care helps a lot. Love that person. Uh, another way of getting through tough times, uh, we were blessed with more than our share of really outstanding men. Uh, I didn't know the tap code when I got there. Fred Cherry, uh, somebody you know, a little black guy, toughest nails. Been there a year longer than I or so. And he was in heartbreak. He had broken the rules. And he was back in there being brutalized. And uh, new guys went in there. And uh, so he started the tap code. And uh, obviously, I didn't know what it was. So he just got down by the bottom of the door. He wasn't in the socks right then, and hollered as loud as he could. So I understand it. it took about 20 seconds through what I told you, and of course he knew what would happen. He just beat the living hell out of him for a couple of days. But we were blessed with a lot of Fred Cherries, Jack Beaumar's. Uh, we were blessed with more than our share of good, and I think every organization is. The thing that surprised me: some of the people that would step forward and actually make a ruckus to the point where somebody was being tortured, and they weren't sure they are going to last another day. Somebody else would, 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 would go out of the way to do something really obnoxious, and, and they'd stop over here and they'd start on this guy. Uh, and probably, sit. But anyway, uh, some of the people who stepped forward to help you uh, are, were surprises. They were some scrawny little guy, they weren't big, tough, handsome. Or, you know, it's sometimes they're the people you would not expect were going to be your strongest helpers in tough times. And I won't say it's the last way, but I've got to stop on this issue. Uh, but um, uh, the last way I mentioned. It doesn't come in last. Is uh, there were times when uh, I just I was not going to make it. I was simply not going to make it, and uh, uh, some prayers were answered. Somehow strength and some that helped me through the, those prayers, those spiritual I guess. Um, now, uh, just a little bit on a uh, tough time uh, on humor. Um, I mean, we had some really great times over there. <laughs> we laughed, you know. <laughs> But uh, I, I lived one time in a cell, and this is true now, you're, you're going to say, oh, come on, it's just true. I lived in a cell block, looking down the top, here's a, you know, down in the middle, and there were two, there were six cells, and there were a total of nine POWs. We lived together for a long time, that, that combination. And with the tap code, you have to live. You just can't sit there in fear every day and hope that you don't hear the turn of the keys jingle at the wrong time, and, uh, uh, or at night. So, so we started tapping the jokes that we knew with, with the tap code. And... Even there, if you have good timing on how you tell your joke, it's a little better, you know. But <laughs> but, uh, but if you tap long enough, you, the long jokes, are they were probably the best, but also the odds of getting caught and getting – it's, it's dumb to be beaten for trying to be funny, right? So, <laughs> so you try to shorten them down. Then they lose the value of the joke and so on. But after a while, there were only nine of us, and it turns out fighter pilots uh, and aviators are very good at what they did. Uh, I've become better now that I've retired, and I think back how good I was, you know, like a lot of us. But one of the things none of us had any skill at was writing humor. We just had no skill at that, so all we had were the jokes we knew. And after two or three times going around, and eventually you get caught, somebody gets beat another. We said, "Look, we know all the jokes. Let's number them." <laughs> and we did. We, we, we truly numbered them. And now, man, you can tell. You can tell. Well, just like, and there's no question. Whenever somebody, if they, if they tap, their timing is good to tap 21. That was the niece slap. You could just about hear the guy laughing in the cell. And by far the best joke it was number 21, <laughs> and, then, and then it, it, it was such a good joke. But I, I, can't, I can't tell you. I'd have to kill you. what it was. <laughs> but it had to do with a lady walking in the bar. <laughs> uh, but uh, but we had we did have humor. And and one of the tough things in our family is the families always imagined the worst. And it wasn't always the worst. Especially the last three years, torture became abnormal. And normal. We lived in big cells. But. Uh, Anyway, we, we, uh, we, we, had, we had periods of humor, and uh, we, we, some of our humor was pretty sick. It's not something I would really talk about here, but there, <laughs> there, there seemed to fit there. Uh, uh, just a little bit about, uh, about leadership. Uh, uh, two of the best examples, and I'll try to make them summarize but two of the best examples of leadership I've, I've ever seen, one is if you, if you log on Google and you're any of them, you just type in Mike's flag, and uh, probably a lot of you know what that is. Uh, it'll come up, and it's taken on a life of its own. And that started when I was a Washington state senator during the flag amendment period. That was about 1990 or so, remember? And I'd never spoken about being a prisoner of war the, when I was in the state senate. And so that, that amendment came up, and we were, we were debating that flag amendment. So I stood up and told Mike's flag how that happened in prison. And somebody's up in the galley, wrote down it, and they sent it in a Reader's Digest, and it was published. And that's, that's kind of how it started. But Mike Christian happens to be from Huntsville, Alabama, where we live now. I'd forgotten that, so we moved down there. But Mike, Mike scrounged a piece of cloth. We were outside. You stripped you naked every so often. Mike found a little gutter rag in the gutter, and got it in, cleaned it up best he could. Tattletale gray, and uh, we had mosquito nets by now. And treatment was a lot better. This was about the last about a year ago before we came home. And at night he was working on this thing. And with a you can find bamboo everywhere over there. And with a sliver of bamboo, we had one blanket. It was a kind of you could strip a thread off. was different than they make them I guess today. So we had a needle and a thread. But the last year, a year and a half, we got some medicine. It was blue. We had no idea what it was for, but they always say, here, medicine. And it was blue. <laughs> and, uh, and also, a tile roof, red tiles every, around the world. You could, get, you could sneak a little pat in the cell, take a little water, grind it backwards. It'll become kind of a maroon color pasty stuff. So Mike had red, which is a maroon, and blue medicine, and a white handkerchief. And uh, he's got a needle and thread to, store, to you know, sew little stars up in the corner. It took him about two weeks. And Mike and I were good friends. And we talked about what he was doing. And I said, Mike, and other people said, you know what's going to happen to you. Well, So Mike, uh, It took him about two weeks to finish. And one morning before the dark guards were around, he got out. And he kind of stood up and, you know, hey, gang, look here. And he, he waved this little tattered cloth. And if he used a lot of imagination, it looked a little bit, like the, just a little, like the American flag. But I think every one of us, you know, we were scruffy and we popped to and that way. We were so proud of that. It was the best-looking flag we'd seen in six years or five years. And... Uh, about every two weeks or ten days, he'd run you outside, strip you of your clothes, and two sets of pajamas, and uh, he had one to wear. And uh, they found him, of course, in the sleeve. And night interrogations are really the worst. But, it, you know, they came that night, and uh, it, was, it was just so brutal. And even before they gave him heartbreak, you could hear it. And, you know, sometime after midnight or wee hours, uh, pushed him in. He couldn't talk. His eyes were closed. Bones, some bones were broken and just discolored. And it was a terrible, uh, terrible beating and torture. But uh, Mike was walking again in two weeks, and I had a good – he uh, – he uh, could talk, and he started looking for another piece of cloth. It was just a tough, tough man. He was just a handsome young guy. Uh, Ned Schumann led us in the Lord's Prayer, uh, knowing that full well that uh, we, we wanted to have church, and when we moved into the big cells, and they didn't let us the first time. Used, so we marked, complained about it, and Ned said, Are we committed to the whole church, have church? And uh, everybody, yeah, yeah. And he said, No. There were 43 of us, and that's a big step, right after we moved out of solitary. A lot of people, and it was great. But uh, so he went around and he, by name. He said, "Leo, Charlie, Jim, Chuck, uh, do you want? Are you committed to hold church next Sunday?" 40, Forty-two people said yes. He was a senior ranking officer of the 43rd, and so he knew right then he's going to be pro- he's going go back to Heartbreak for torture. But that was a, a true leader, best, good, great, raw leader. He said, "Okay, we, we have a goal of holding church. We're committed to hold church. We all knew what that meant." He so said, "What's the plan?" So we made a plan, and this uh, what Sunday morning came, we started gathering up about bat and then cell and. And they came in uh, with some guards and so on like they did the Sunday before when we first tried this. And they had guards. English-speaking interrogator had guns. And Ned said, not a problem. We're just going to have, we'll be quiet. We'll do quiet church for 10 minutes. And church, in a communist prison camp, you know, didn't go over real well. But Ned, they instantly grabbed Ned, hauled him off to heartbreak. Second ranking man stood up, walked to the center of the cell and said, gentlemen, the Lord's prayer. So we started reciting the Lord's prayer. We got about halfway and uh, they weren't sure what was going to happen, we, we, we thought, but we thought we knew what would happen, and they did, finally they figured out they grabbed the guy and hauled him to heartbreak. Same thing. Number three, didn't get as far in the prayer. Number four, probably got five, six words, our father who art, and we were drowning out the interrogators. Like, stop, stop. Guards are running around, you know, hitting people with guns. It's just chaos. And it a fifth-ranking man way back in the corner. He's taking his time, and, uh, and I'm not blaming him because I'm number seven. I begin to wonder about this plan. <laughs> But everybody was committed. Uh, but anyway, just before he got to the center of the cell, somehow it just became, you know, instantly quiet. And, uh, and the, the interrogator said something to the fact that uh, this isn't working, let's go we'll try something later. And they took, you know, number five with them, went out. Five people went into our torture, five people survived. And um, we all church on that Sunday until we came home. Uh, a great victory. They held all the aces, but it was so meaningful. But, but, but I'll never see better raw leadership than that. Ned knew he was going to be tortured. Knew it for sure. And everybody else that stood in line, we didn't know how far they'd go. But every person to a man. But Ned was the leader. Oh, that's, that's as good as I'll see. Uh, just a little bit on, uh, on a, couple more, a couple more points, and we just ha- have some Q&A or something. Um, what's important in life? The last, about a year to go before I came home, we've been at big cells now, and they moved us around some, and even then. But uh, there were 20, 30, 40 of us in a cell during the last three years. And we all had different gimmicks on, on, on p- ways to pass time. We could talk out loud now. We held classes now. What, whoever knew the most about anything, uh, they claimed that you know they claimed they knew everything, and we had no way. If they knew <laughs> 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 So we had classes and stuff, uh, and no but no pencil paper. And but one day I came up with the idea. I'm going to keep track of what we talk about. What is it we spend our time talking about? And we're all aviators, right? Most of us are fighter pilots. And I thought, well, I bet number one is going to be. Our job, because that's, you know, it's a great job. And we, they pay us to do, have this much fun, all that. Uh, but I kept track. and I, you, you mentally did things just to pass time. I, I built a little file cabinet. And I put some little files in there, or papers, and I had, a, you know, a blue, uh, had blue medicine. Uh, <laughs> so imaginary, I, I, put, I put four marks, and one and four marks, When this topic, this topic, this. And after about two weeks, I found out we only had about 20 things we talked about. Just about all our time was devoted to these 20 things. And guess where our work came in? Seventeen. It hardly came up. <laughs> and I'm not saying, work is important. You feel good about doing it. You, have, you, you do your job well. You have milestones, and you, you get promoted, and, and you provide for yourself. Work is important. I'm not knocking at all. But in the big scheme of things, you know what was most important to us when you're pulled away from all this stuff, this laboratory we were in? There were four things that dominated our conversation. We kind of moved around, but they all, unfortunately, I can put an F. Our, our faith, our friends, our family, and fun. That's what we talked about. Moving around some, uh, maybe family was just about always first. But faith, family, friends, and fun, those are important things in life. And the, the point I make is, especially young people who are out there working hard and you know, hustling, moving on, uh, don't get so wrapped up like I did as a young lieutenant. I'd be fly all week and my wife would give me kitchen passes and I'd go cross-country on the weekend and, you know, so I'd get better and maybe I'd get promoted faster or whatever. Uh, but don't pass up some of those really important things in life. Friends, family, faith, and fun, they're going to last you forever. So, uh, enough on that. The, the, uh, I just want to make one more point, and I want to talk about freedom. <coughs> and uh, it's, in, it's in the book, I think. The, uh, I, was, I was in a solitary cell. It was a camp, they called it Camp Punishment. They took 36 of us. Long little building, long down the middle, and chunk, 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 And there were 30, eight, uh, uh, 36 cells, and there were 5 and a half by 6 feet. We found a way to very accurately measure it. And the advantage of living in a five and a half by six foot cell, you don't have to worry about jogging. And if you're, if you're not you're not into jogging yourself, you know, you got a good reason not to. And also the, the advantage is if you wake up when you when you wake up in the morning, you reach out like this, you can touch everything you want. It's all right there. Uh, but I spent about a year there, and uh, and they call it camp punishment. We call it Skid Row, and it was kind of a camp punishment. But about once a week or so, once every ten days, a guard would come, and this is when they're still those first three tough years, and they didn't want you to see each other, so you couldn't communicate and you can communicate, uh, you, you can organize. If you can organize, you can resist, or at least resist better. That's another reason we had to communicate. But uh, they tried to keep us from that, and uh, the guard opened the cell door once in a while, and by the way, when the guard opened the cell door, so was, uh, those first three years at least, every time he, you'd hear the key, and you had to stand in front of your cell, and then if there were one or two of you in the cell, when the door opened, you had to make a full 90-degree bow, and you just dumped the bucket out in the sewer over two or three days. And when you came back in, you had to get back in front of your door, and you had to make another full 90 degree bow when they closed the door. And, uh, we, we call it their form of humiliation, intimidation, and degradation. It was just nothing, you know, nothing conventions. That just it was just their show, showing their control over us. And, and they, they gave us Vietnamese names. We used, you know, Major Leo Tharsons, You know, they beat you, and knocked you down, and pulled you around by your hair, or whatever. So uh, it was, it was, a, it was an obnoxious uh, treatment. But and it was just their proof of they could control us, I guess. Uh, and, and you live with it. It's just how you survive. Um, but the guard, I went, one day I was taken down to the end of the building, walked down to the end of the building, there's a little piece of concrete slimy a faucet in there. It drips some and you could turn it up a little bit and get a little bit more and you took your cup with you and uh, we always kept a cup, an old rusty cup and, and you get maybe two or three cups and pour it on yourself and then the guard says, you know, go, go, go in. And that, was, that was your bath for the week. But I, I found a little rusty nail by a piece of concrete there and I was able to slip it in when the guard wasn't looking and, and got it uh, and got inside the cell, and the windows were bricked up so we couldn't see out. But they'd put the bricks in this way rather than this way, so the mortar was, you know, pretty thin. It wasn't a great quality mortar, but with that nail and enough time, and that's what I had, you could drill a hole um, in the mortar, just a little teeny peephole. And I did that. And when the, when you weren't when you weren't there, you'd put a little dust or something in there because they'd come in and look or see if they could see if, if we could see out somehow. Uh, but I would spend hours looking out that little peephole. I had my eye right up against it, and I could see, like, this aisle, a little slice of life, you know, two or three degrees out there. And POW walked by. You didn't know who they were, but with a tap, go, you'd find out who went to interrogation, so now you know what they look like kind of. Uh, one, I'm a farmer, farm kid. One day, a, a mother hen and some little chickens walked by. Now, that was big news for a guy from Walnut Grove, of Minnesota. And uh, there's chickens in the camp, and everybody, like, really? How many are there? What You know, it was big news. It killed the whole day, talking about little chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but a uh, guard had walked by, and one day as this guard walked by, and I didn't know his real name, and he gave me—he knew my Vietnamese name, uh, as that guard walked by, I, this is the image that all of a sudden, it just, it just came into my mind I hadn't thought about before. I visualized myself flipping a coin, and I caught it, and I put it down, and I remember it was a dime I visualized, and I looked down. It was so real, I took my eye off the, off the little people. I looked, at, and uh, sure enough, it was heads, which that meant that the guard I'd just seen walked by out there had tails. But the thought behind that was—it was just it was profound. The thought behind it was: was it just by the flip of a coin that my parents were American and his were Vietnamese? How how, how did I luck out? You know, I could have—I could have been nothing No, there's nothing wrong with being a Vietnamese. There's a lot wrong with being a Vietnamese, and you're born in Hanoi or somewhere around there, and your job is to guard and torture tortures, uh, torture prisoners. That's bad. And he—I thought that that kid out there will never have. He'll never have a chance to marry who he wants, maybe. He certainly can't go to school. won't have the opportunity. He'll never fly a fighter airplane. You know, we had, just by, and my thought was, just the more I thought about this, I, I, I thought, concentrate on, on all the rights and the freedoms and uh, opportunities we have just by, by our birthright. Just by the flip of the coin, we're born here. It, just, it, it, it amazed me. I was, what a great thought it was. And, and I, I concentrated, and then I got thinking about the world, and I thought, Leo... And at that time, I figured out it was the 1960s, 70s, I thought probably three-fifths of the world lives under some form of autocratic government. And two-fifths, maybe or so, but certainly we in America. And I thought, um, and I started realizing, you know, I could have been any of those other million or billion people out there. And my, the, I finally, it finally settled in on me that made a major difference in my attitude about being a prisoner. And that is that if I die today, if I die today, I'm ahead of the game. If I compare myself to the rest of the world. It was just it was just a that 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 freedom. It's, it's the first time I was able to kind of make freedom just about became real, just about touchable, just by watching him and looking at that people and 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 those thoughts that just flashed through my mind. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, you have just given me the freedom to use about thirty-seven minutes of your your time. I hope you got a good investment out of it. And